Thanks for listening to the Toronto Legends podcast, powered by the Henderson Brewing Company, a locally owned, award-winning neighborhood brewery that celebrates Toronto's stories and culture. I am your host, Andrew Applebaum. My guest today is, well, this should give you a clue. Yes, indeed. You are correct that my guest today is Alan Frew, the Scottish-Canadian singer, songwriter, public speaker, and author. His work as the frontman for Glass Tiger has won him five Juno Awards, a Grammy nomination, and five Canadian Classic Awards in recognition of songs that have been played in excess of 100,000 times on Canadian radio. He also had the horrible experience of suffering a stroke in 2015, but has since fully recovered and has returned to touring and sharing his extensive music catalog everywhere. Welcome, Alan, to Toronto Legends. Thank you for joining me. How are you doing today? I'm good, Andrew. How are you? Good to I'm... hear your voice and finally touch bases with you. Yeah, well, I appreciate your time and I understand you had a gig last night. How'd that go? Where were you playing? Uh, it was a simple one. It was just a little solo thing. I did uh, <clears throat> up in my old neighborhood, actually, in Newmarket. I live in Toronto now, I was up in Newmarket. And uh, uh, it was just uh, three or four songs and then a, a few meet and greets and sign some guitars and stuff like that. And uh, But I've been gigging a lot. I just got back from Cancun and then I did a gig the very next night. Uh, so it's been catching up with me a little bit. Well, it always, uh, you gotta keep all your skills sharp. And I do wanna, since you mentioned Newmarket, I wanna mention that the subtitle for this podcast is York Region Legends. I'm based out of Richmond Hill. We've also ah. had uh, publicist Eric Alper on, who's down the street. We've had Elvis Stoiko on, who has his own arena named after him. And of course, I did wanna start with, are you still based out of Newmarket? Uh, no, I'm based out of Toronto, <laughs> but uh, Newmarket is certainly near and dear to my heart. Absolutely, and with your permission, we're gonna go all the way back, get the Alan Frew story. In what will shock absolutely nobody because of your excellent accent, you're not a native Torontonian. Where were you born? And uh, describe your upbringing. I was born in uh, a very blue collar working class uh, family in a town called Cote, Cote Bridge, which is about nine miles outside of Glasgow. Um, we lived hand to mouth. Um, both my parents held down jobs. My dad was a, worked in a steel mill. My mother worked in factories. And then at the age of, uh, I, I would say 16, I was only here a few weeks and then I turned 16. So at the age of 16, I came to Canada. People often wonder about my accent, why, <laughs> why I've still got a Scottish accent. <laughs> but I was, number one, I was 16. And uh, one of the first things I did when I came to Canada was play football, like soccer football. And uh, all the boys were Scottish and Irish and, uh, and then of course living with my mom and dad. So nothing really changed uh, for me when it came to sort of lifestyle. It was very UK-ish. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, and so, uh, uh, I grew up in uh, Newmarket from the age of 16 till Glass Tiger uh, uh, hit. I want to ask you, Alan, you know, at the age of 16, that's a very difficult age to make such a huge transition from Scotland to Canada. Were you mocked for your accent or did the girls find you uh, so charming? It's so funny that you should say that. That's exactly what happened. There was lots of fights with lots of guys. And there was lots of girls <laughs> that actually liked it. Uh, the, one of the funny stories I like to tell is I had two, two of my best pals. One was uh, one whose parents were Scottish, but he had a very prominent Canadian accent, and one whose parents were English, and he had a pr predominant uh, 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 Canadian accent. And we'd go to parties, and there'd be girls maybe standing in the corner, and the boys would say, right, 
let's go and talk to the girls and you speak. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's, it's, it's very captivating, I have to say. Now, Alan, in 1982, you were a registered nurse at a Newmarket hospital. Were you playing music as your side hustle or what were your career intentions at that time? Oh, yeah. I, uh, my intentions were that I joined uh, a rock band at about the age of, I'm going to say about 19 or 20. And that was my first taste of it, but it was a disaster. Um, we were broke and starving and we all gave up. And for some wacky reason, I thought I wanted to be a doctor. And I realized that I'd let my sciences lapse and stuff. And of course, we didn't have any money to put me through med school. So I started uh, from scratch. I became an orderly uh, in the local hospital. And then I worked in autopsies for a, a few years on the side, assisting in a pathologist assistant. Then I went back to college and took my RN. And during that time, I got asked if I would join another band. Uh, but it was horrendous. I was really killing myself. By the time I got my RN, some of the staff were kind of complaining that I was like a zombie. Mm. Because I, you know, I would, I'd get up at six o'clock in the morning and I would do a full shift and I would finish. I was a single parent with, cust uh, with custody of my son. I would go home and kiss my son and then I'd take off and I'd maybe drive two hours through to London, Ontario and gig to one in the morning, come home, sit in the chair, get back up at six in the morning and go back to work. And I, I would do that for seven days straight. So the staff began to kind of talk behind my back and the, the supervisor called me in and said, I think you're going to have to take a leave of absence. <clears throat> and I did. And then I wrote, don't forget me when I'm gone. <laughs> well, and thus the story changed. So, Alan, at that time, you're playing as a bar band under the name Tokyo, and you mm -hmm. get your big break opening for Culture Club at Maple Leaf Gardens. How did you get this big break? Well, th there you go. So there's a, a really interesting thing. On the two nights that we opened up for Boy George, okay, I'll tell you how we got it first. Um, our Canadian manager, record companies had been scouting us for quite some time. And we thought we had a, we thought we were signing with Island Records. And then Chris Blackwell himself flew in from the islands. And then he passed on the band. And then Virgin was after us. Capital wanted us, they had us, but then they came up with this wacky idea of taking me away from the band <laughs> and sending me away to England and making me a so-called star on my own. So I turned that down. So then they said, you'll never work, you'll never work in this town again, you wee Scottish bugger. Wow. Um, so we're back to square one again. And then um, our Canadian manager got us a job, uh, got us a, an opening, uh, bigger pardon. Our Canadian manager uh, showcased us to an American manager, Derek Sutton, who was the manager of Sticks. He fell in love with us and he used his clout. And I believe legend has it we i don't know if it's still the only but we were the first unsigned band to play in such a slot in maple leaf gardens i believe mm -hmm. anyway i was on the midnight shifts and so we opened up for boy george on the friday night in front of twenty thousand people and then i was slinging bedpans that night <laughs> and then i went back to maple leaf gardens on the saturday and did Boy George's show again. And again, I was on the midnight shift. Uh, I did Sunday on the midnight shift. And on the Monday, my mother came and woke me up and said, someone's on the phone. They say it's important. And I said, tell it me go away. <laughs> they said, no, it sounds really important. And I dragged my ass to the phone. And the voice, I went, hello. And the voice said, you're a star. <laughs> and wow. I said, what? said, you're a star. And I said, who is this? And it was a gentleman by the name of uh, Tim Trombley from Capitol Records. And he said, Dean's on the phone. And that was the president who had, who had kind of turned us down because I, I turned him down. Mm -hmm. and, and Dean said, okay, I give up. He said, <laughs> uh, come on down. 
uh, with the whole band and you'll sign the deal. And I said, okay, and that was that. Fabulous. I, Alan, I have to ask you, how much interaction did you have with Boy George? What were your memories of that uh, opening slot? Uh, uh, very little. Uh, um, I arrived, I mean, when, you, when you're an opening act, you're really focused on your job. You know, like, um, well, I did three months with Tina Turner and we saw Tina at the beginning and we saw her for a little party at the end. That was mm. it. Uh, so uh, with Boy George, it was really us just totally focused on getting on that stage. And then as I, as I say, I had to literally jump in my little car and drive up to Newmarket and do my shift. <laughs> That is incredible. Now, Alan, you're signed to Capitol Records. You changed the name of the band to Glass Tiger. The million dollar question, why Glass Tiger? Really not that complicated. Um, we signed an international record deal with Capitol Records and we felt that it was a new beginning. We'd worked really hard. So we thought, why don't we get a new name and so we had a gig on New Year's Eve uh, in Toronto in a bar when we were going to announce that we had signed with Capitol Records. And so before midnight, we were Tokyo. And after midnight, we were Glass Tiger. And uh, we had just decided to change the name. And Al Conley, the guitar player, was reading a book, which I believe they made a movie out of it. Uh, it was called Paper Lion. And it was written by George Plimpton. And it was about the Detroit Lions. And Al Conley came to rehearsal and said, what if we went with Paper Tiger? And I thought, mm, it's not bad, but not quite. And I went home and I just messed around with other words. And I thought uh, the vision of a glass tiger, I just thought it was a bit more exotic. And I came back and I said to the guys, what do you think of glass tiger? And they said, done. I was not expecting a reference to George Plimpton there. Yeah. So in 1986, Glass Tiger released its first album, The Thin Red Line. Huge success at the 1986 Juno Awards. Don't Forget Me won Single of the Year, and The Thin Red Line won Album of the Year. Don't Forget Me and Someday reached the top 10 in the U.S. charts, with Don't Forget Me in particular, spending an impressive 24 weeks and peaking at number two on the Billboard Hot 100 in the USA. Glass Tiger was also nominated for a Grammy Award for Best New Artist in 1987. Alan, did you attend the actual Grammy Awards that year? And any good stories around the Grammys? Yeah. I took a pee beside Roger Daltrey and Doc <laughs> Everton. I was in the middle urinal. <laughs> Roger Daltrey to my right and, and uh, Doc Severinsen to my left. Uh, yeah, um, you know, it was incredible. You know, you're sitting beside Paul Simon and Prince and and and, uh, and we were leaving the next day to go on tour with Tina Turner. So it was all, all very lofty. And Peter Gabriel and I were having a nice chat and he, he signed my program to Alan. Better luck to both of us next time. <laughs> uh, it was, you know, it was, it was wonderful. What a great time. We'd been touring with Steve Perry and Journey, and uh, that was an amazing thing. And then we landed the big tour with Tina. So our first tour, our first major tour was 18 months. Wow. 18 months of constantly being out there. We did America, we did Canada, America, Europe, Canada, America, Canada. <laughs> you know, so it was amazing. A lot. A lot. Now, one big question we, you probably always get, and as you heard from that clip from Don't Forget Me, Brian Adams is involved in singing background vocals. How did this come about? Very simple, very uncomplicated. Um, Jim Valance is the co-writer and the producer of the first two albums. And Jim is the long-time uh, songwriting partner of Brian Adams. So we hadn't met Brian, and we were recording the Thin Red Line and we were doing bed tracks in Toronto. And the phone used to ring occasionally and it would be Brian to talk to Jim. And one time Jim put me on the phone and uh, I met Brian on the phone for the first time and we just chatted. And he was coming in for the Juno Awards and 
we weren't invited to the Juno Awards because we hadn't happened yet. And Brian came to the studio and we had a few beers and we were having a good time. Just a couple of lads having a good chat and a good laugh. And Jim said, why don't the two of you go on the microphone? And we farted around with uh, Don't Forget Me When I'm Gone and I Will Be There. And uh, uh, the rest is history. We, we, we just did it for fun. And, uh, and that was it. Amazing. Another, another lad, as you would call him, uh, that you yeah. have worked with is Sir Roderick David Stewart, better known as Rod Stewart, singing with you on My Town from the Glass Tiger album, Simple Mission. How did this come about getting uh, Rod Stewart involved? Again, very simple. Um, when, you, when, when management and record companies get involved, that's when it's complicated. But Rod and I met at the Juno Awards and uh, I was told I would get five minutes with him and I turned out having like two hours with him, hmm. maybe, maybe more. As a matter of fact, he handed me his Walk of Fame award because they had presented him with this Walk of Fame thing, Sky Dome Walk of Fame, telling him he was the first concert ever. And he was. But when I was nervously trying to break the ice with him, and he was talking about the Sky Dome, uh, how wacky the sound is in the Sky Dome, I happened to say, yes, I agree with you. When I sang there, so then he said, when you sang there, when the hell did you sing there? And I said, well, Rod, I was the first to sing at the sky. And then it dawned on me that he thought he was the first. So I had to backtrack and tell him, oh, no, 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 you were the first at a concert. So anyway, he handed me this award to Alan. Uh, you were the first, Rod Stewart. So um, he said to me, when you come to Los Angeles, call me and we'll kick the ball around. And I said, okay. And so we became friends. And we had already recorded uh, My Town. It was already done. And we were at dinner this night when a, a backup singer, I forget his name, came in. And I said, oh, there's a lad that sang with me on My Town. Or sang with me today on a song. And, and, he, and Rod said, oh, I know him. And so the lad came over to the table and we we're making small talk. And he said to Rod, have you heard the song that Alan's written about Scotland called My Town? And Rod said, no. And so small talk a bit longer. It's a brilliant song, blah, blah, blah. And he leaves. And then Rod turns around and says to me, why did you not ask me to sing on it? Wow. And I said, well, I didn't want to play that card. You know, I didn't want to abuse the, the friendship. He said, no, no, I want to sing on it. I want to sing on it. So that was it. That's great. And, and I have to ask, are you fans of the same football teams or, uh, or did you no, have a rivalry there? No, we are not. We are the biggest <laughs> rivals that you could possibly imagine. But that's good. You don't let it get in the way of your friendship. I haven't seen him in years, but I would noise him up for sure. If I, and likewise, he would do the same because he's a big Celtic fan. Alan, I want to talk about kind of business strategy. As you know, you have toured with artists including Rod Stewart, Tina Turner, Fleetwood Mac, Roxette. Why was the strategy at the time to tour internationally as an opener for a big act rather than Glass Tiger themselves playing smaller shows at clubs and building kind of from the grassroots? Well, truth be told, we did a bit of both. But, um, you know, it, it was a strategy that in many ways paid off and then and then the pro here's what the problem was by the time that strategy had sort of paid off we were already sort of for want of a better term sort of exhausted as an entity we'd done so much that what we thought was going to be a short hiatus eventually became a long one. So if you don't imagine a band who was headlining the whole time and then saying, you know, we've had enough, we're going to take a break. We had done that physically, but we'd done it more often as an opening act. And it, it had been very successful. We sold a lot of records and we gathered up a lot of fans and we covered a lot of miles. But by the time uh, the early 90s come along, I was already 
at that point where I, I wanted to take a break from it and do my own thing. And then the, the sort of downward spiral came because the hiatus just perpetuated for years and years, especially in America and in Europe. Mm-hmm. And so now when you try to come back out, could we go to America and play small clubs here and there? Absolutely. Could we go to Europe and play? Absolutely. But hey, I, I've done it all, so it, it takes a lot. You know, we get these fans that'll say, please come play Philadelphia. You know, please come play Chicago. But as you know, because you deal in the business so much, the idea of just going down to Chicago to play a small club, you know, it, it, it doesn't compute. For sure. Well, Alan, when you look back at your biggest years, I mean, in Canada, there was nobody bigger. And I was wondering if you'd retell the story of uh, what you've called your Beatles moment in uh, Saskatoon from the 80s. Oh, my goodness me. You're really, really... uh... Several things began to happen. We, our first tour was with Honeymoon Suite. And all, looking back on it, I always felt for the lads because, you know, now we've done shows with Honeymoon Suite, with all due respect, where they would open for us. But our first tour was opening for Honeymoon Suite. And things began to go crazy. Like we did, uh, we did a, a, a record signing at a West Edmonton Mall and uh, it just ended up thousands and thousands and thousands of kids showing up. And we had a, we had a gig to do at Gage Park in Hamilton, which was in a little band shell with like a chicken wire fence. And we were begging the promoter to let us out of it because he didn't know what he was taking on. And uh, sure enough, 80,000 uh, teenagers showed up and it was a disaster and it got, you know, we had to stop it after about three or four songs. So anyway, we, we get to uh, Saskatoon and we did the gig and we were just heading to the tour bus when all of a sudden, like hundreds and hundreds of young girls started chasing us and we were literally running down the street towards the tour bus and I could see the door it was so close and all the guys got on, but I, did, I couldn't make it. So I turned right and now they're chasing me up a street and up an alleyway. And I think, well, I'm a dad now. I was a single parent and I'm thinking, Alan, you're 30 years of age. Talk to these kids. So I just kind of stopped and I said, okay, girls, you know, take it easy kind of thing. <laughs> And then, and then I get grabbed and I hear one shout out, who's got scissors? <laughs> and I'm thinking, do they want to stab me? And of course, no, they don't want to stab me. They want to like cut my hair and cut my clothes. And I thought, this is ridiculous. And I think actually, if I'm not mistaken, there was a combination of maybe some security from the gig and maybe a police officer or something came along and, and they got me on the tour bus. And that was well, they saved you. Yeah, <laughs> you know when you talk about crazy fans, uh, you also Alan have a great story about coming off stage in Regina, and you followed what seemed to be your usual post-show ritual, but there was a bit of a twist, if you recall. And whenever you came off, you had somebody ready with a poncho yeah, with the they, hole cut out. Yeah. yeah. So they used to wrap. I would lose. Uh, I would lose five, six, seven, maybe more pounds every night, just in what, just in sweat. And, and I'd be chilled. And um, so someone had the smart idea of taking these big, soft, terry cloth towels, bath towels, and they cut a little hole in it. Oh, I know, the, oh, I know where you're going with this. I, okay, <laughs> yeah. I know the story. So every night, someone uh, sort of usually belonging to the event, it might be our road manager, who I would, would have known, obviously, but he used to delegate uh, someone on their staff. So I would come off the stage and someone would immediately throw this sort of poncho over me, keep me warm, and they would have a cup of tea ready. And uh, so we were in Regina and this guy uh, throws the poncho over me, right, Mr. Fru, come with me, and he gets me down to the van 
and the van goes underground in the stadium into the dressing room and uh, he, gets, he gets me a cup of tea and he does a fabulous job and now the dressing room's starting to fill up with a band and different people and whatnot and I say to my road manager, wow, that guy that you've got looking after me, what a great job he did. And, and Joe says, my road manager says, what guy? I didn't supply any guy. And I said, that guy over there, he's, you know, he's got a poncho ready, the cup of tea ready. And Joe said, I've never seen that guy in my life. And the guy, that's how the guy made it into the Glass Tiger dressing room. <laughs> He obviously either followed us enough or he'd heard enough stories from fans, but he did a hell of a job. <laughs> wow. Maybe scary now when you look back, but oh, uh, yeah. what, what oh, an yeah. impressive thing. Alan, let's fast forward to today. Glass Tiger is still touring. How many of the original members of Glass Tiger are still involved? I'd love to have said four of us, but recently, over the last two or three years, uh, our bass player, Wayne, has launched a new company which has taken up a tremendous amount of his time. So four of us, Michael Hansen left in 1988 and uh, we went through a couple of drummers and then our present drummer, Chris, has been with us all, over at least 20 odd years. So Chris feels like an original member, but he's not. And then Wayne and Sam and Al and I went all the way through to, oh, I don't know, about, about five years ago or so. And then Wayne's company started uh, picking up and picking up. So he's since kind of dropped uh, to the side. So there's, there's the three of us, Al and Sam and I, uh, are lifers. And how do you balance your Glass Tiger catalog with your solo catalog, or are they two distinct entities? They're pretty much two distinct entities. I, I have my own stuff, and I actually, to really separate from Glass Tiger, I created a thing called 80 to 90 Rewind, where I put a killer band together, and we do all 80s hits by others. Simple Minds, Tears for Fears, in excess, Midnight Oil, Robert Palmer, John Waite. And it's been very successful when I take it out. It's, 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 it's a much more of a party, corporate, fun evening, but we have a blast doing it and we've done some great gigs. Uh, and, and it's it, sort of no competition to what I do with Glass Tire. The Toronto Legends podcast is powered by the Henderson Brewing Company where you can try this month's limited edition beer, Amelia Red Heifeweizen, inspired by Amelia Earhart's passion for flying that started right here in Toronto. Go to hendersonbrewing.com to order now, or visit their taproom and retail store at 128A Sterling Road, located along the West Toronto Rail Path. Henderson Brewing and the Toronto Legends Podcast, a great local partnership. Alan, I do want to switch gears a little, and uh, to the extent you're comfortable talking about it, I do want to talk about your uh, health incident mm -hmm. while preparing for what at the time would soon be Glass Tiger's 30th anniversary. In 2015, you suffered a stroke in your sleep at age 58. Mm -hmm. So, of course, you did what everybody who has a stroke does. You went to play golf the next morning with your son, Gavin. Yep. On the actual golf course, you had a second stroke, so you headed to the hospital. All the while, by the way, you're driving your own car, apparently, yep. and it gets even crazier because once you got to the emergency room, they were actually about to release you and send you home when yep. the full severity of your situation was recognized. Essentially, you had a clot on your brain, paralyzing much of the right side of your body. Tell us a little about that uh, horrible experience, and, and thankfully, you're, you're recovered today and can talk about it. Well, yeah, that, that's, I guess that's being, being here to talk to you today is, is where the gratitude comes. You know, the doctor will tell you it's like the size of a piece of dust, but the damage that it can do to the brain is incredible to the body. Uh, well, you, that's exactly it. I, I was recording, my wife and daughter were in Edmonton, so when the boss is away, uh, the boy will play and I mm -hmm. just go to the studio for way too long every night. Whereas if my wife had been here, she would have come down 
to the studio and maybe dropped us off something to eat and a cup of tea or got us to stop and take a break or maybe convinced me to stop at six o'clock instead of midnight. But she was away, so Sean and I, my assistant, we were hammering out, you know, 14 hour days. So I was probably really quite stressed out. I have a history of high blood pressure and high cholesterol. Uh, it's a hereditary thing. But I, I'd been swimming, I took up swimming, which I still am to this day. And I was in great shape. And I kind of got a little lazy with my medications. So that was probably a, co a combination of those things. I woke up in the morning and my leg and my arm were not working properly. But I forced myself uh, to keep going and uh, my son came to the house. Uh, he asked me if I wanted to go to the hospital. I said, no, let's go golfing, as you told the story. So I end up, um, I had several incidents until the big one hit in emergency and I was indeed paralyzed on my right side. And it's, uh, it's such a tremendous blow to your uh, humanity and to your psyche. Uh, we all think we're somewhat immortal. A stroke, I'm sure a heart attack, cancer, severe trauma reminds you that you're very fragile and that you are just a regular human being that, that can be taken out of the game in the blink of an eye. And so um, I got really determined. I went through a mourning period. Uh, for anybody out there listening that goes through severe trauma, as you know, I'm a public speaker, and one, one of the things I talk about is you, you have to mourn it. You have to allow yourself to mourn. Uh, for me, that was about two or three days of just a, a, an emotional breakdown. I couldn't quite keep it together. I was crying a lot. And uh, if I saw a familiar face, I got very emotional. So you mourn it, but then you have to pass into the phase of acceptance. You have to accept it. You have to be able to sit back and say, okay, the doctor told me I've had a stroke and oh, look, I'm paralyzed. Or, oh, I've just been diagnosed with breast cancer or, or I've had a heart attack. You have to accept it. And only after the acceptance phase can you figure out how to fight it. And even, Alan, once you get through that acceptance phase, and in your case, you went from North York General Hospital to St. John's Rehab Center at Sunnybrook, in your own words, you've said that you then kind of started your own pity party, and you were worried not about dying, but about living in a diminished state. What was your emotional or mental state at this time, and how'd you, how'd you get through this very difficult period? Well, it went from the pity party sort of started right in the emergency department with my son, because he was the only one there. And I could feel the stroke taking over my body. And it feels like cement is being poured on you. And you just don't know where it's going to end. So it starts with the outer side of your arm and your hand and your face. And it keeps moving towards the center. And then I guess if, if, you go, if you're going to die from it or you're going to have a massive stroke, it keeps moving until you know, maybe you're gone, right? Uh, so for me, I could feel it taking over my body. And so I said to my son, if this keeps going, I want to die because I didn't want to be just completely, you know, uh, immobilized and paralyzed and unable to talk. And, and, uh, and so um, I said to my son, I want to die if that happens. And of course, he, was, he didn't want to hear such talk. When it stopped and I was just sort of paralyzed, right arm, right leg, a little bit in my face, the pity part, it was more, have I lost my career? Will I ever be able to sing again? Will I be able to walk properly? Will I be able to... And so that was when uh, the emotion, the, the pity party actually took place during that part, the, the, the paralyzed phase which was com lasted completely about, I was sort of completely paralyzed on my right side for about three days. And then on the fourth day, my toes and my fingers started to wiggle. And that's when you go, okay, <laughs> pity party's over. <laughs> what, what are we gonna do about this? And I went on you know, a massive course of 
trying to reapply. I, I would sit for hours trying to take the top off of a toothpaste uh, wow. packet, whatever. Yeah. Tube. Uh, I would spend hours trying to do that. I would spend hours trying to raise my leg up off the bed. Uh, the, the little things. And in rehab, they have you do, you know, simple little things like they put little objects inside a bucket of rice, dry rice, and you have to try and put your hand in it and find those little objects and bring them. You know, it's 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 a tough grind. Yeah. It took well, me nine months. It's an incredible story. And in light of this health scare, Alan, you actively speak out on the dangers of high cholesterol mm -hmm. and hypertension in an effort to increase public knowledge and, and raise awareness of proper health practices in stroke prevention. Give us the update today. Are, would you describe yourself as back to 100% or how do you feel these days? No, you're never 100%. You're, never you're always the person that's had the stroke. Hmm. I, presume, I presume you're always the person that's had the cancer. You're always the person that's had the heart attack uh, and et cetera, et cetera. So for me, uh, I can still feel it in my hand, in my right hand. Now, I don't know if you know, I, one of the byproducts of having the stroke is I had this uh, sort of, um, they call it a kind of vasal, vasovagal response, the big vagus nerve that runs up the center of my body. And if I get sort of unwell and feel like I had, I had to vomit, I can pass out. And it happened to me three times. And then the last one, I broke my neck in two places. I broke oh C6 and C7, 10 days before going on tour. Oh boy. They call me heart and glass eye. Boy. And I, uh, I had a major, major surgery to repair my spine in my neck. So that didn't help with the, the sort of paralysis and tingling in my hand. So I've still, you're always the person that's had the stroke. But that being said, uh, I've made a marvelous comeback. And, uh, and my voice, I'm singing better than ever. Wow. It's weird. I'm in a great place vocally, better than I was. Well, it's a, that's an amazing outcome. Certainly, you didn't want to have to go through all that to get there. But um, I do want to ask you, I noticed in your documentary, Live to Tell, as mm -hmm. well as on some social media postings, that you had a cane with a luggage tag that said George. Why <laughs> was this cane tag George? Well, I guess if you build a legacy, there's a price to pay. And so... When I had my stroke and I was in hospital and, you know, you're, you're still kind of confused in the sense that you've had this shock to your system. I felt that it was best if I told the fans that something had happened to me. So I sat with my I'm right side dominant, which was paralyzed. So I sat with my uh, undominant left hand with one finger and I typed a little message to the fans just saying something bad has happened. I've had a stroke. Please don't worry. I'll fight my way back. Alan. And I, and I posted it thinking that that would just be between me and the few fans that I had on Facebook at the time. Mm -hmm. And of course it hit the airwaves and it was on all the radio stations. It was on the TV stations and they wanted to come in and do interviews and then fans found out and they were coming in off the street. And so they had to move me from one room to another room that was basically a great big closet that didn't, it looked more like a utility room. You would never think it was a patient's room. And then they took my name off the board and they put the name George on the board. <laughs> so my walking cane and my walker had the name George on it, uh, it was a little tongue-in-cheek thing that they did uh, because Alan Frew was not a patient in the hospital, it was George. It was your secret code name, just like you'd sign in at a hotel, I guess. How do you know these things? I'm, uh, I, I, have a, I have to tell you, Alan, I've got a PhD in, in Glass Tiger and a, and a master's degree in Corey Hart, so wow. look out, i got lots of good stuff for you. Do, you. do you know the name I used to sign in? What it was? <laughs> I do not. Do you, do you want to reveal it or you're still making use of it? No, I don't use it anymore. Uh, it was Jack Torrance. 
I'm not sure. I don't know the reference. Well, Jake Torrance was the name of uh, Jake Nicholson's character in The Shining. And I was a huge fan of The Shining. And so to this day, if I was to meet my old road manager, Joe, and he sees me, he would go, hey, Jack. <laughs> That's great. Well, on that note, Alan, I am not a journalist, but I'm determined to get to the real answer for so many things. And as you know, on the internet, we can't trust everything. So I have a bunch here for you of internet true or false. Okay. Alan Frew, you used to suffer stage fright and would regularly run off the stage and flee right after the first song. Your bandmates would have to drag you back. Internet true or false? It's... It's a combination of true and false. True that I suffered badly from stage fright and I used to feel like I was going to vomit and I'd go behind an amp. And, uh, and then what happened was I went to a doctor who just diagnosed me with sort of nervous stomach. And what was the answer? Pills. And mm. so they gave me some pills one time that I had a bad combination with some inhaler that I'd taken. And yes, I abandoned my band on stage and I, and I boarded my, I locked myself in the dressing room. They couldn't get me back on stage. We got fired. Wow. Yeah. Alan Frew surprised a 95 year old super fan in Alberta with a private concert. Internet true or false? Absolutely true. Uh, has had about a million and a half views. It was just an old lady. They wrote to me and they told me she was a big fan and would I give a copy of my book? And I sent it to Edmund, to Alberta, to the, to the nursing home. And then in my book, it talks about asking. Ask, you ask for what you want, and you can only be told no. And the, the nurse who was looking after her asked, Alan, would you ever consider coming in and just saying hello to her? And the tour bus happened to be passing by that area in Alberta. And I stopped the tour bus and I asked the guys in the band, would you come with me? And we went in and I gave her a big hug and I got to meet her and we just saw an old piano over in the corner and I thought, I'll sing for her. And so we sang Someday and one of the nurses filmed it and the rest is history. It, 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 it went viral. That's a great story. Alan, inspired by listening to the Tears for Fear song, Everybody Wants to Rule the World, in your very first day in the studio working with Jim Valance, you both created and recorded Don't Forget Me. First day, first song, which became your biggest smash hit. Internet, true or false? Internet, absolutely true. And it, it's actually a greater story because when Sam and Al were in the room, Jim hears, Jim hears Tears for Fears, Everybody Wants to Rule the World. He then says, oh, shuffle beat. So for those of you that don't know, a shuffle beat is like da 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 right? And so Jim fires up a shuffle beat and we start the beginnings of Don't Forget Me When I'm Gone. Al Conley and Sam Reed were smokers at the time. They take a smoke break. And during that smoke break, Jim Valance gets on a keyboard and does this little shuffle uh, I beg your pardon, this little chug chug on the keyboard and I immediately start singing what becomes Someday. And so the very first day we ever worked with Jim Valens, we write Don't Forget Me When I'm Gone and Someday. And both of them win single of the year Junos from the same album a year apart. Never been done. Amazing day. That was, a, that was one hell of a day. Yeah, you're not kidding. I got one more for you here, Alan. In a sort of 1980s fantasy vision come true, you are best buds and like to hang around with Corey Hart. Internet true or false? Um, no, Corey and I, Corey and I briefly met. I was with Sam. We met in New York City at, at, the, at the Capitol Records building in New York City. Um, but we didn't, we didn't sort of become what you might say at least... Uh, uh, professional buddies until much later in our careers and then we toured together and it was wonderful and then a really cool thing uh, during COVID I don't know if you know this you probably do because you know everything else <laughs> Corey was scheduled to shoot a video in Toronto but it was in the middle of COVID and he was in the Bahamas 
And so he called me and he said, I have this wacky idea. I wonder if, it, again, I don't think it's ever been done. But he asked me if I would be the character in his video instead of him. Hmm. Are you aware of this? I'm not. The song is called, oh geez, Something Morning. A beautiful, beautiful acoustic song. I, the name escapes me right now. Uh, and so I went to a little bar in Toronto and we shot this story of, it's basically the aging musician. Uh, and I'm the character in Corey's video. It's his song, his voice, and I am, I am the character actor in the video. You, sh you should look it up. I will. So with Corey Hart as played by Alan Frew. <laughs> yeah, I guess so. Yes, it's called Morning Sun. Okay. The Excellent. official video for Corey Hart, Morning Sun. So uh, uh, there you go. Um, I will look that up. Alan, on that note, some 80s pop superstars run away from the 80s, and some embrace the success and fans from that decade. How do you personally keep the 80s alive and in perspective? Well, I'll tell you what really keeps it alive. The audience or the audiences keep it alive. If it, if it weren't for them, I, I mean, you can start at the beginning. If people weren't still listening to the 80s, it would just have vanished, but it hasn't. And so a really fascinating thing, uh, uh, Andrew, is that um, when Glass Tiger plays live, and it doesn't matter whether it's a club with a thousand people in it, or whether it's a festival with 15,000 people, I always ask the audience, how many have seen us before? And right off the, the get-go, maybe only a third of the audience put their hands up. So already you, 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 you're, you're finding out that some people have not seen you before. And then of the third that put their hands up, when I asked them, how many of you saw us in 1986? Only about maybe a third of that third put their hands mm -hmm. up. So then you really discover that you're in front of an audience that hasn't seen you before or didn't live through the 80s the way we did, that they're finding the 80s through their parents. I have a fun thing that I like to say at the audience. I, I say, uh, I don't mind if, if one or two of you come up to me and say, Mr. Frew, uh, I found you through my mum and dad. They love the 80s. But, but I always say, the first time your grandmother comes up and tells me I'm hot, <laughs> I'm going to quit. Uh, uh, so anyway, that's what keeps it alive. And, and then, then by them doing that, your performance then sort of feels like it's a first time again and a mm -hmm. first time again and a first. So I'm sure Mick Jagger or Bono uh, or any of these guys that have brought you, I think they would echo that sentiment that if the audience didn't care and the audience wasn't there, you couldn't keep it alive. But by virtue of the fact that they are, and they're vibrant, and many of them are, I mean, look at the Rolling Stones, they're still playing in front of teenagers. Absolutely. So uh, that's what keeps it alive. Well, the 80s are very much alive. I have to ask you this, being a Toronto resident, Boom 97.3 often does this. In fact, they're in it again this long weekend. It's nonstop hits from the 80s long weekend. Honeymoon Suite, Platinum Blonde, Frozen Ghost, The Box, Glass Tiger come on like clockwork. When you're in your car and Glass Tiger comes on, do you crank it up or do you change it up? I don't listen to radio. <laughs> oh, boy. <laughs> I, I don't listen. I, I just listen to, uh, well, my playlist runs a gambit of classic opera to classic rock to classic pop, an occasional new thing thrown in that I've discovered or my daughter has told me about, but I don't listen to uh, uh, mainstream radio, so I never hear Glass Tiger. <laughs> I, I have a fantasy vision, Alan, that I'm going to pull up beside you on uh, Young Street, uh, somewhere between Richmond Hill and Newmarket, and while the song is on, and I'm going to look beside and you're in your car humming along to the song. But You know, it, it happened. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Today. It happened in the day. 
I know you're a huge Maple Leafs fan, and in fact, you wrote Free to Be, which was used by the Leafs at their theme song at one time. What was it like to play Maple Leaf Gardens? It was fascinating. My first concert ever at Maple Leaf Gardens was Johnny Winter, and the opening act was a British band called Slade. Yep. And they, they, my, the first album I ever owned was an album called Slade Alive. And I, re- I remember going to Maple Leaf Gardens as a boy, and it felt enor- it felt huge. You know, it felt like a huge stadium. But when you actually crack it and you become the, the, the act that's going on the stage, it felt quite small. I remember it actually felt like some a big living room, like a lot of people in this just this giant living room. And, uh, and I've, it's been the same for other stadiums, you know, like in Chicago and, 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 and Los Angeles and places I've played. I've, I've seen them on television and then, then you go play them. Uh, I have done bigger stadiums. I've done big soccer stadiums and stuff. But Maple Leaf Gardens was very, very special. You know, Wendell Clark and I had become pals at the time, and uh, you know, to Dougie Gilmore and I were, were good pals. So to see players that you admired, Wayne Gretzky, Mark Messi, we were all good buddies, and then watch them on the ice, and then go sing in their stadium. You know, I did I did the uh, the national anthem for the Stanley Cup final, Edmonton Oilers and Philadelphia Flyers with my dad at home watching on the telly. Big moments that you would think other things would have been bigger, but for me, that was the Leafs and that was the Oilers and that was a stadium. And the, that was a big deal to me. That's fabulous. Well, that, that is a Toronto cultural icon, that building. I personally saw you, Alan, way back, Glass Tiger. You were the featured act. Openers were Frozen Ghost and Honeymoon Suite. Yeah. I, I want to ask you, if I may, about your wife Marcy apparently you met on a blind date in 1988 yeah. at that moment in time you have a hundred thousand women chasing you how do you Alan Frew end up on a blind date well it was completely uh, foreign to me I had never done anything like that <laughs> uh, what happened was uh, my wife at the time uh, she owned a, a bigger pardon my uh, my wife at that time in her life uh, she owned a little boutique in Edmonton, and so she was on a buying trip uh, for clothes. And she had a, a dear friend, unbeknownst to me, we were doing the video for I'm Still Searching, and uh, there was a very pretty model in that video. And after two days of shooting, the pretty model said to me, are you seeing anyone? And I said, no, my life has been too hectic and I'm not seeing anyone. And I thought she was going to say, would you like to go for a drink? Yeah. (laughs) And she didn't. She said, I've got someone you should meet. Wow. And I'm like, what does that mean? And anyway, she set uh, my now wife and I up. She set us on a blind date and we went out on a blind date and that was it. We've been together. your, your wife, as you mentioned, Marcy, she's actually very successful in her own right. She was the founder of Marcy's Gourmet Products, uh, most well-known, I believe, for salad dressings. Is that business still going? Uh, no, she sold it off, and she's, uh, she's doing other things. She's uh, in the beginning stages of putting uh, an online, I guess you would call it a cooking lifestyle show, but the whole thing would take place in Italy. Uh, oh. She's matched up with this Italian lady, and it's it's fascinating to watch the two of them together because my wife doesn't speak Italian, but she speaks this broken Italian with atrocious grammar, which is which is so cute. And the other lady can't speak any English, but the two of them can communicate unbelievably well. But it's all part of the the intrigue of it that they can't. Uh, uh, it's fluently uh, speak to each other, but it's uh, a delight to watch. Oh, that's great. Uh, hopefully it, it, it results, Alan, in you getting some good uh, Italian cooking. Oh, that, it does. That, that part is uh, it's a win-win. 
You've been so great with your time, uh, but I would be remiss if I did not share with you my Alan Frew story. So if okay. you can put up with this, here we go. I am at the Air Canada Centre watching a Leafs game in the 90s with my late great best friend, Greg LeClaire. We're scanning the crowd for famous people, Toronto legends as it were. He got excited and said, there's Alan Frew. I said, no, it's not. I think that's Olympic cyclist Kurt Harnett. <laughs> so we argued about this for a while, and then suddenly there's a close-up on the big scoreboard of you slash Kurt Harnett, and the PA announcer says, the Maple Leafs are very pleased to welcome Olympic cyclist Kurt Harnett. So I've been validated, I'm enjoying my moment, and I'm telling you in the PA announcer's very next breath, and I am not making this up, he says, and the Maple Leafs also welcome singer-songwriter Alan Frew, wow. and the camera literally pans... 10 rows down to you, Alan Frew, wow. sitting in literally the same section, but much better seats than Kurt Harnett. <laughs> so I have, <laughs> I have to ask you, how often have you been mistaken for Kurt Harnett or anyone else for that matter? Uh, I was mistaken one time. Kirk and I, I think, met way back then. I don't think I've ever seen him since. Uh, and I don't, I can't conjure up anything on the spot for you on being mistaken for uh, another. I wish somebody would mistake me for Brad Pitt. That would be okay. <laughs> Me too. I would take that. You know, I used to love going down to see the Leafs. I haven't seen them in a, in a while. Uh, you know, times change and you get busy and you do other things. But I'm, I'm still a Toronto boy. And, uh, you know, my love of sports remains, my, my great love is the Glasgow Rangers. Uh, I love the New England Patriots, and I love the Toronto Maple Leafs. Uh, whenever I can, I would go down and see them, but I haven't been able to do it in quite some time. Well, I'm with you, and as we say now, this is the 56th year we've been saying it. This is going to be the year. But you, you know what's funny? You mentioned that thing about the coincidence of you thinking I wasn't there, and then I was, and that was just... I was in... I, here's a spooky story. I was in my car last night and I was driving and I brought up my Spotify playlist and in my head I was thinking I would like to hear Kashmir by Led Zeppelin and in my head I said oh why don't you just say hey Siri play Kashmir by Led Zeppelin which my phone is now just about to do because it just heard me uh, and uh, but I didn't I thought, ah, and so I just hit the Spotify button. I must have 1,200 songs in my playlist. And I kid you not, Kashmir came on. Led Zeppelin live at the O2, and it was Kashmir. What is that? What is that? Things happen that we can't explain, but uh, on that note, you're going to make my wife very happy because... In addition to being a big uh, Glass Tiger fan, she's an equally big Led Zeppelin fan. So she's going to be pleased to know that, given the choice, you listen to Led Zeppelin as well. <laughs> I do. Alan, you've been so great with your time. As we close up, I want to ask, what are you working on for the remainder of 2022 and any projects in the future that you'd like to talk about? One thing I wouldn't mind telling Torontonians especially is that Glass Tiger will play Massey Hall uh, December the 10th, Glass Tiger and the Parachute Club. Wow. The 10th. Uh, I'm writing a novel. Hmm. Basically, the slogan would be the hooligan who became a healer, the healer who became a nurse, the nurse who became a pop star. I'm writing uh, a novel based on that. I want to get back into the public speaking game a little bit now that COVID seems to have given us at least a break in terms of being able to perform in front of audiences. And uh, Glass Tiger's thinking about a coast-to-coast Canadian tour in the spring. Well, always lots going on. And where can everyone best follow you and Glass Tiger and everything you're working on? Uh, you can follow me on uh, Instagram at Alan underscore Frew. Unfortunately, uh, my Facebook Fan page got hacked and sort of stolen from me recently. I have no control over it. I do have a, a, a regular uh, Facebook page that's functioning right now, but I had one with lots of followers that I can't access anymore because one of these 
sorry souls come on that feel they need to impersonate or steal from you. Oh, wow. So they did that. But on Instagram, uh, they can follow me at Alan underscore through. Excellent. Well, the stories were fantastic. I appreciate all your time. And Thank Alan, you. I want to wish you uh, continued success going forward. Thank you so much, my friend. Thank you. And to our listeners, we thank you for listening to this episode of the Toronto Legends podcast, powered by Henderson Brewing Company. And on behalf of Alan Frew, I am Andrew Applebaum saying, Mahalo. Hi. This is Candace Sampson, the voice behind What She Said. My show is your destination for stories that not only entertain, but also educate and empower. Every week, I spotlight strong female voices from across Canada, women who are changing the narrative and driving change. Don't miss out on these inspiring episodes. Subscribe on Apple, Spotify, and Amazon Music, or head over to whatshesaidtalk.com. What She Said can also be heard on BlastTheRadio.com, Mondays at 5 p.m. and Wednesdays at 7 p.m. That's BlastTheRadio.com. It's time to dive into the stories that truly matter. Hi, I'm Mercedes Nickel, four-time Winter Olympian and host of Dropping In, a podcast with Mercedes. This is a podcast where I interview a bunch of different people. I get the good, the bad, and the ugly, as well as I share my stories along the way. Now you can drop in at droppingin.com or subscribe on Apple, Spotify, and YouTube. I'll see you soon.